Please stand for the reading of God's word. First Peter 4, 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of God. Church, I want to ask us to take one more moment of silence before the Lord, and then I'll, I'll open us in a word of prayer. Our Father, we trust you this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, God, for your grace. Lord, we need a word from you this morning, and we ask that you would speak to us. Help us to hear your word and to embody it. We really need your help. So I pray you help us internalize the things that you speak to us today and help us to know your love more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're talking about the topic of suffering. And that is no small thing. I want to start this morning by just asking you to take another moment to quiet your heart. And I want you just to think Some of you are right in the middle of some of the most excruciating suffering of your life. And many of you are close to those who are in similar situations. So I want to just start this conversation about suffering with bringing those names and those needs before God. So if you would just take a moment, consider the suffering you're going through or the suffering someone close to you is going through and just lift them or even yourself to the Lord.
This week, as I was gathering with Henry over at Brock Creek, we were looking at a passage of scripture from the Gospel of Mark. And this was a passage that was talking about a blind man named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. We don't know his real name. Maybe he's just called Bartimaeus. But this is the son of Bart, the son of Timaeus. He would beg on the street going out of Jericho. And so anybody that had a little extra change or a little extra food could give it to Bartimaeus. And that was his entire livelihood. And one day he heard that Jesus, the Nazarene, was in town. Now, anybody else, if they heard that Jesus, the Nazarene, was in town, would know that if a Nazarene is in town, that means the town just got a little bit more filthy. The town just got a little bit more smelly. The town is now not as well off as it was before because anybody who was a Nazarene who was from Nazareth was not known as somebody who could bring you anything good. But when Bartimaeus heard that Jesus the Nazarene was in town, he started crying out with a loud voice, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, the name which means Yahweh is salvation, son of David, the title that means this is the king who's going to bring an everlasting kingdom of peace that will never end. He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Everybody around him told him to stop talking. Shut up. He doesn't want to hear from you. What the gospel of Mark tells us is that Bartimaeus cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, when he heard this, stopped and said, call him. Those who were around Jesus went and called blind Bartimaeus and brought him to Jesus. Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? He said, I want my sight. And Jesus said, go in faith. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And it says that he went his way, but his way was to follow Jesus in his way. How did Bartimaeus see what nobody else could see in this man? How could a blind man see what seeing people had missed? I think there was something about his suffering that filled him in to the truth about the Messiah, the Son of God. And I want you to know that whatever you are suffering, God is not finished yet. He's not out of the way. He's not out of control. God has a purpose in your suffering. There's some misconceptions we have about suffering. When we start to suffer, there's some scripts that might go through our minds. One of them is, 
God must be angry at me. Suffering means God is angry at me. We think we made God mad, and so like a father pulling off his belt, God sends us trials to punish us. Or we might think suffering means God isn't in control. If bad things are happening in my life, how can God possibly be in control? Why would God permit these things to happen to me? Or we might think, suffering means I didn't try hard enough. This script often shows up when we suffer at the hands or in the mouths of other people. We think, if I had said the right thing, or if I had done a little bit more, if I had tried a little harder, I wouldn't be experiencing this difficulty. In other words, I just need to do a little more and I won't experience this suffering. A fourth script we might think is suffering means that I sinned. I must have done something wrong that's causing this suffering. It's like karma. I'm getting what I deserve. Now, there are more scripts that run through our heads when we're suffering, but these four are pretty common. And like we said at the beginning, actually we didn't say because I skipped that part of my introduction. These misconceptions about the meaning of suffering often come from a distorted view of who God really is. Peter starts off in this passage by inviting us to look at Jesus. Look at those first words in your bulletin. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. I want to pause there. I want to stop there for a second. Christ suffered in the flesh. Think about that. Christ suffered in the flesh. Does this mean that God was angry at Jesus? No. On the contrary, in Mark 9, verse 7, we hear the father speak about his son, and we hear exactly what the father thinks about the son. He says, this is my beloved son. Beloved, this is the object of my affection. This is the apple of my eye. There is no wrath or anger from God the Father to God the Son or from God the Son to God the Father. Yet Jesus suffered in the flesh. That means that God was not angry with him. Does it mean God wasn't in control? No, on the contrary, when Jesus stood standing in trial before Pilate, he tells them, you would not have authority over me at all unless it had been given from you from above, given to you from above. Even in his moment of literal trial, Jesus rests in the reality that God is totally sovereign and totally in control. If Christ suffered in the flesh, that means that that Christ didn't try hard enough? No, on the contrary, Jesus, Jesus did everything he was given to do. He did it all that God laid out for him. That's John 17, verse 4. His trial was not a reflection of his lack of performance. He accomplished all the good work that God gave him to do. Did Jesus' suffering mean that he sinned? No, on the contrary, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. Jesus went through every trial known to man, and yet he didn't sin. The presence of suffering does not mean we necessarily sinned. Christ 
suffered in the flesh. It doesn't mean that God was angry with them. It doesn't mean that God was out of control. It doesn't mean he didn't try hard enough. It doesn't mean that he sinned. The presence of suffering doesn't mean those things. Family, listen. I want you to hear this. God loves you. He loves you. On the cross, God took upon himself his wrath towards sin. He bore it, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means that if I'm suffering, God isn't angry at me. On the contrary, God loves me and wants to use this suffering to bring me closer to him and to remind me of his provision and of his love. Now, Peter and the Holy Spirit are inviting us into a new way of thinking about suffering. And Peter says, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. Peter says, go to war in your minds about what you think about suffering. Take up arms against any other pattern of thinking. Be on guard against false ways of thinking about suffering. Arm yourselves. Now, why is Peter so adamant about this idea? Why is Peter using military language to talk about how God's people view suffering? I think there's two reasons for this. First, you remember that little scene in the Gospels? Some of you might remember. If you don't remember, that's all right. Jesus and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi on the outskirts of the kingdom. And Jesus asks them a question. He says, who do people say that I am? His disciples say, some say John the Baptist, some say the prophet, some say Jeremiah. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives the great confession. He says, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't, didn't, didn't bring that to your mind. That's given to you by the spirit of God. And a few days later, they were talking and Jesus began to say, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to Jerusalem because I have to suffer I'm going to Jerusalem because I have to be killed. I'm going to Jerusalem because in three days I'm going to be raised. And Peter, the same one who just made that good confession, says, never, not today. It's not ever going to happen to you. And Jesus issues the most severe, visceral rebuke. Of Peter, when he says, Get behind me, Satan. He says, You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You don't have in mind the things of God, you have in mind the things of man. This is the sharpest rebuke we have in the scriptures ever given to a man. Peter watched Jesus rebuke the fire out of the Pharisees and the chief priests, but none of those rebukes matched his rebuke of Peter. And what Peter didn't realize was that suffering 
was the crucible through which God's love would be poured out on humanity. He thought God's kingdom would come through might, through strength, through the power of the sword, through the trampling of the enemies. But it didn't. And we see that Jesus' rebuke didn't change Peter's mind because in just a few a few weeks, we see in the second reason I think Peter uses such strong language, in the garden when Jesus was being arrested, Peter pulls out a shank and cuts the guy's ear off. He didn't get it, he didn't understand. And Jesus says, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Maybe if Peter had stayed awake when Jesus was praying, he would have heard Jesus say, Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup of suffering was God's will for his beloved son. Peter was stuck in the chains of human passions, but Jesus was liberated to live for the will of God. Suffering was the crucible through which God's love would be poured out on humanity. And so Peter writes to these Christians, these exiles who are experiencing all kinds of suffering because they are committed to the cause of Christ. And Peter says, arm yourselves, arm yourselves. This is a new way to think about suffering. This is a new perspective. And here it is. And he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, this is a new way of thinking. This is a totally new perspective. This would have been totally unexpected by Peter's readers and to us. Because so often we experience the condemnation that if I'm suffering, something must be wrong. And God must be angry. And God must be out of control. I am not trying to make light of suffering. What I hope we do by the end of this time is we see the magnificence of the cross and God's incredible, miraculous purposes in the midst of our suffering. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What in the world does that mean? I haven't ceased from sin. I would ask for a show of hands. Actually, I wouldn't, so I'm not going to. You've ceased from sin. I know the answer. So what in the world does he mean? I think what Peter means is two things. I think one thing he means is he's reminding us of our identity. I think the other thing is he's talking about a demonstration of sincerity. He's reminding us of our identity, and he's demonstrating our sincerity. Here's what I think Peter means. When you became a Christian, you died. You died to your old way of life. You died to your old pattern of thinking. You died to your old view of success. You died to sin. You stopped believing the lie 
that sin is the way to life and joy and peace. You stop believing the lie that God doesn't really love you and that you have to look out for yourself or else nobody else will. You died with Christ. Those sinful ways of living and looking at the world were crucified on the cross of Christ, and now you are alive. You are a new creature. You have new ways of viewing the world. You have new thought patterns. You have a new view of what's worth your time and what's not. You have received the love of God in Christ Jesus, and you have been raised with him. You have resurrection life. You have a new identity. You have ceased from sin. You hear it? You're not bound by that old way of life anymore. And that's hard for some people to accept. Yes, the old ways of life will not satisfy you like, they, like you thought they did before. Amen? You ever try going back to that sin? It does not satisfy. Yes, that means family members and friends might look at you different. Yes, that means they will probably misunderstand you. Yes, that means they will probably, to quote from Peter, be surprised when you do not join them in the activities and behaviors that they think will bring life. Yes, that means you will be maligned. Yes, that means you will suffer in the flesh. But your suffering in the flesh is a demonstration of the sincerity of your faith. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If you're more disturbed by suffering than you are by sin, then let's go back to the cross. If you are more disturbed by suffering than you are by sin, let's go back to the cross. Let's go back to the reality of life without Jesus. Let's go back to see what fun it is to ride and play with sin. There's a list of simple behaviors that Peter gives in verse 3 that remind us, as as a reminder that sin will ultimately drown us if we let it have its way. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Listen, when you were living in sensuality with no moral restraint, with no sexual boundaries, did that leave you feeling whole? Did that leave you feeling loved? Did that leave you feeling valued? When you lived by your passions, satisfying every human impulse toward indulgence, did that bring the freedom that it promised? When you lived in constant drunkenness, having orgies and filling your weekends with drinking parties, did it contribute to your overall physical and emotional health? Did it bring peace to your family? All this idolatry, when you gave yourself away to any behavior or thought pattern that replaced God with something else, when you threw off any of the God-given restraints of the law or your conscience, did it satisfy? Did it give you rest? No. No. And Peter, like an old wise sage, comes in to say, that's enough of that. 
the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You've had enough of that. You've spent enough time doing that. I haven't met an old Christian yet who told me, I wish I would have waited a little bit longer to come to Christ. Notice in verse 4, Peter calls this sin a flood of debauchery. He says, that stuff will drown you. It's no accident. And just a few verses before, he references the flood back in, back in chapter 3. Peter, were, people, people were doing whatever they wanted to do, and they got exactly what they were looking for. They drowned in their own wickedness. They drowned in their own perversion. The judgment of God was the fitting response to their idolatry. They wanted freedom from God's restraint. So we can read in Genesis chapter 7, the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the heavens, windows of the heavens, the windows of the heavens were opened. They wanted a life without restraint, and that's exactly what they got. God's judgment is real. In verse 5, Peter reminds us that God is ready to judge the living and the dead. And God is a perfect judge. God doesn't take bribes. God is no respecter of persons. God is not swayed by who your daddy was or how much money you paid to your lawyer. God is not trying to interpret some constitution to determine the original author's intent. The law of God is a reflection of the nature of God. Sin is sin because it distorts the perfect reflection of God in his creation. And when God judges, he judges rightly and he will judge. He will judge our actions. He will judge our behavior. And he will judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He doesn't care if you look good on the surface if underneath there are rotting desires. He is the perfect judge. Peter's giving a warning. He's saying, he is ready to judge. And that's why we need the gospel. All of us are guilty of lawless idolatry, but Look at the hope we have in verse 6. God is the perfect judge, but here's what he says. He says, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Listen, you will not be judged if you are in Christ. You will not be condemned if you are in Christ. There is no condemnation. Peter says, look at the saints who have gone before you, those who have died. Look at Stephen, who suffered at the hands of his countrymen, whose blood brought about tremendous persecution. He was judged in the flesh. People hated him. People misunderstood him. People maligned him. But where is he now? He's living with God in a communion you could never dream about. Was the suffering worth it? Yes. Because the reputation that matters is not the reputation he had with men, but the reputation he had with God. Peter says, 
Christ suffered in the flesh to free you from that old way of living. You don't need that. You don't have to live for human passions anymore. You've been freed for the will of God. You've been freed for the life that God offers. You've been freed for the life and joy and peace that only come from the hand of God. He says, yeah, they may talk about you, but that's all right. You have ceased from sin. Suffering frees us from the deception that sin is what we really want. Suffering serves to clarify our priorities and give us an urgency for the things of God. I was talking with a buddy of mine last week, and he's going through the most significant suffering of his, of his entire life. And he's weak from the suffering. And I asked him, I said, how are you doing? And he said, man, you know what? He said, I recognize that I've been putting everything in front of God. What he was saying is, this that I'm suffering is shaking everything that can shake. And I got nothing left. And what I now recognize is that the one thing I want to live for is for the glory of God. When we're talking to a sweet older sister a few years back, and she had some tremendous health troubles, and then God healed her, and I said, I said, what do you think? How was that? She said, you know what? He said, the sky is bluer. And the grass is greener. Suffering is a, is a messenger to show us what life is really about. I am not being trite with your suffering. But we got to get this new perspective. We got to have, we got to see this. We got to see that, that, that in Christ we have a new way of living. We do not have to be dominated by the depression that would come from our suffering. We do not have to be dominated by the scripts that might start playing when we're suffering. We don't have to be dominated by that stuff. We have the mind of Christ. I want you to hear some older saints as they talk about suffering. We're a fairly young church. We got some old heads in the crew, but we got to get this wisdom. Pastor Eugene, Mr. Peterson, paraphrases this text like this. He says, since Jesus went through everything you're going through and more, Learn to think like him. Think of your sufferings as a weaning from that old sinful habit of always expecting to get your own way. Then you'll be able to live out your days free to pursue what God wants instead of being tyrannized by what you want. You've already 
putting your time in that God-ignorant way of life, partying night after night, a drunken and profligate, profligate life. Now it's time to be done with it for good. Of course, your old friends won't understand why you don't join in with the old gang anymore, but you don't have to give an account to them. They're the ones who will be called on the carpet and before God himself. Listen to the message. That's the gospel he's talking about. It was preached to those believers who are now dead, and yet even though they die, just as all people people must, they will still get in on the life that God has in Jesus. Listen to the words of J.I. Packer. He says, the truth is, the truth here is that God of, the God of whom it was said, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, is very gentle with very young Christians, just as mothers are with very young babies. Often the start of their Christian career is marked by great emotional joy, striking providences, remarkable answers to prayer, and immediate fruitfulness in their first acts of witness. Thus God encourages them and establishes them in the life. But as they grow stronger and are able to bear more, he exercises them in a tougher school. He exposes them to as much testing by the pressure of opposed and discouraging influences as they are able to bear, not more. See the promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, but equally not less. See the admonition in Acts 14, 22. Thus he builds our character, strengthens our faith, and prepares us to help others. Thus he crystallizes our sense of values. Thus he glorifies himself in our lives, making his strength perfect in our weakness. You hear what these old heads are saying? saying God has a purpose in your suffering. God is not finished yet. The pulpit prince, Gardner C. Taylor, famous African-American pastor, says, Any authenticity that we are going to have as persons of faith and any authority that we are going to have as witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ will come because of our exposure to bruises and scars. There is no other way to, there is no other way to authenticity. There is a certain counterfeit pose that one may maintain, but as to an entrance into the full, the true authority, into the glorious liberty of the sons of God, that comes by exposure and by wounds. There is no other way. he's saying is suffering means we have ceased from sin. Arm yourselves. 
be on guard against the scripts that lead to despair in your suffering. Because God is not finished. Church, we've got to encourage each other. We've got to stir one another up. Old heads, you've got to talk to us. You gotta tell us what it's like. You gotta remind us of the gospel. You gotta remind us that Jesus is alive and he endured suffering for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We've got to encourage each other because life is hard. We are going through some stuff. But God isn't finished. He is not finished. We've got to keep preaching the gospel. We've got to keep preaching the gospel. God is a faithful judge. And we got people in our community who are suffering and who have no idea about hope. We got to keep preaching the gospel out there. We also got to keep preaching the gospel in here because we got to believe the gospel. We got to be reminded of grace. Are you struggling in that family relationship? We will mourn with you. We will grieve with you. We will walk with you. We will have faith for you. Bonhoeffer says, the faith in my brother's heart is stronger than the faith in my heart. We will walk with you. we got to be strong together. we got to grieve together. How's that marriage? Don't flee. Let's run to the gospel. Let's keep striving together. Let's fight together. Let's arm ourselves with a new way of thinking. What is God's purpose here? Don't give up. Do not give up. Do not grow weary. He is not finished. This is the word for his church. God have mercy. I'm praying for you. Pray for me. Let's walk together. Let's embody this text. Let's deal with suffering in a new way. We're not masochists. We don't just look for suffering. But it is coming. And when it comes, we have hope. We have a blessed assurance that Jesus is ours. 
You know who wrote those words? A girl who was blinded just a few months into life, Fanny Crosby. She was blind, but she could see that God had a purpose in her suffering. Let's pray. God, we we need your help. I pray for my friends. Some of us are going through incredibly difficult things. Please, Lord, we just need a rope to hold on to. When our eyes are up to the, the waters and we're asking why, help us to remember that you are not finished and you are enough for the next minute and the next minute and the next hour and the next hour and the next day. Help us get through. And God, if we've been through some things, Help us to tell our story. Help us to testify of how you've provided and how you've come through. God, we need you to work by your spirit through your church to encourage us today. Bless us, Lord. Bless us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Peter who was crucified upside down to tell us what it means to suffer, how to do it with joy and with hope. God, bless us, lead us, God, to be a church that endures through suffering with belief that you are enough. You are not finished yet. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name.